0: Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and one that I listen to regularly was Car Talk. And uh, back when uh, Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, were hosting that program, I found it interesting and very entertaining. Uh, Like, uh, what do you do when your check engine light comes on? Their advice was the the easiest fix is to put a piece of duct tape over that light. There, fix, they said. The warning light is no longer judging you. But, they said it's no substitute for fixing the actual problem. Good advice. Yes, that light uh, can be irritating, but its purpose is to keep you from bigger trouble. Uh, I want you to think about how, how much failure there is recorded in the Bible. Maybe you've not thought about that before, but there is a lot. Uh, even the greatest human heroes in Scripture uh, are flawed. Why? Uh, well, one reason is because this is not a human book. Uh, God shows people as they are, which is broken, defective, sinful, in a desperate need of the perfect Savior, Jesus. Another reason is that God wants us to learn from the failure of others. That they're like this flashing warning light uh, that says, watch out, danger. Uh, So for our own health, we must not put duct tape over that warning light. Uh, We need to learn from it, not ignore it. Now for the last uh, five months we've been studying Mark's gospel, uh, his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the good news. It's the message our broken world needs to hear. The section of the story that we're looking at this morning, and this doesn't change. There we go, I have no control over that, called failing just like this technology and this section is filled with betrayal, abandonment, and denial by Jesus' followers. So I don't want you to, to close your eyes to this failure. I don't want you to think, oh, this would never happen to me. Uh, there are four warning signs here that we should take seriously. So I'm going to take us through this text, show these four warning signs, and uh, then realize that there is hope. Uh, warning number one, and I'm going to have to point to you. So that you tell, there we go. When I'm overconfident... Uh, That's the first warning. I read an article this week by Alan Johnson called Seven Signs You're Living in Denial. And he says we're all living in some form of denial. And if you think inside your gut that that's not true, then you're actually showing the first sign of living in denial. His number one sign is when you think you're above failure. Uh, That's the first warning. Uh, Look at this uh, next verse. Uh, Verse 27, Mark 14. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus straight up tells his disciples they're all going to fall. They're going to fall away. The the Greek word is scandalizo, and it means to be tripped up, to be offended. Jesus said you're all going to be offended by me. Uh, And it's Not that the disciples would lose their faith in Jesus, that they would lose their confidence, their courage to follow Jesus. And Peter, of course, forcefully disagrees. In the next verse, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Peter's the most outspoken of the crew, but every single one of these men agreed that they would rather die than desert Jesus. But their best intentions don't stand up to, to, to pressure. Uh, denying Christ, by the way, is not something I plan on. It comes in the unguarded moments. It comes when I'm certain I'm above that kind of failure. Uh, it's pride in some respects. The great teacher, Bible teacher Howard Hendricks uh, once did a study of... 246 Christian leaders who had been sexually immoral. And that study found that the one thing that they all agreed on, the one thing that they all had in common, was that they were convinced this could never happen to me. Never happened to me. See, But as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, uh, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's a repeated warning in Scripture that, that we must not be... Confident in our own uh, ability. Uh, This just leaves you vulnerable to attack. Uh, I I would say this, that uh, uh, one of the most dangerous things I can do is believe I'm above any sin. That's one of the most spiritually dangerous things that can happen to me. I'm above any said, No, 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 that's not true. Uh, and I can get feeling invulnerable and feeling self-righteous and look at other people like I would never do that or I would never be caught for that. So that's one of the warning signs when I see myself as stronger than I am. Second warning sign. That's when I don't pray during times of crisis. So the scene changes now as Jesus and his disciples walk to a nearby olive garden, and not where there's unlimited breadsticks. This is a different olive garden called Gethsemane, where the trees are growing, uh, olives, and there's a press there where those olives are squeezed into uh, olive oil. And uh, just like those olives, Jesus himself was under tremendous pressure. He's squeezed by the horrors of the cross that is just hours away. And notice what he says to his disciples. Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. So I, want you to, I just want to point out the words distressed. Uh, that, that means to be struck with terror, to be, have the shuddering awe. That's how Jesus is feeling. Uh, the word troubled, adamanao, is the Greek word. It means to be weighted down with anguish. He's overburdened with anguish. Uh, see, the road to the cross was not some silent sacrifice that was clean and painless. It was agony. This one who knew no sin would bear the weight of all our sin, and the wrath of God against sin would be poured out on the perfect Jesus. And so far beyond the, 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 the torture that Jesus experienced physically on the cross, there was this relational torture, separation from the Father, mental and spiritual torture and it was so bad mark says in in another verse that that jesus couldn't even stand he fell to the ground face down and pleaded with god and uh just uh i would imagine that there are some of you who are in relational or physical pain even right now you might be calling out to god for help as jesus did Uh, notice how bad the pain was he says abba father everything is possible for you take this cup from me Yet not what I will, what you will. So Jesus cried out for escape. The, the whole reason he came into the world was to be the sacrifice for sin. And that was all of that is pressing in on him. He says, God, if it's your will, take this from me. Father's answer was, You must go through this. It's the Father's will that Jesus suffer excruciatingly for a greater purpose. And and for your cry and pain, as you cry out to God for relief, for escape, that might be God's answer as well to you. But don't give up praying. Continue to pray. Continue to ask for God's will to be done. Uh, Notice what happens next. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing... But the body is weak. So here we have Jesus in crisis, and the disciples are out like a light. This guy who had just said, I would never deny you, can't stay awake. So Jesus tells them, Can't you stay up? And then he goes off by himself to pray again a second time, and returns back to them a second time, and they're asleep again. And Mark says their eyes were very heavy. You understand that. Your your eyes might be heavy right now. That happens, right? But this is a crisis. It's a crisis. So Jesus goes away for a third time and returns back to find them zonked out again. Uh, Despite repeated warnings that this was a crisis, they could not get motivated to pray. And this led to failure. Jesus gave them three chances, and then it was too late. A church high pastor used to have uh, 24-hour prayer vigils several times a year. So he'd have this great big chart several of them actually, where the 24 hours was, was marked off in 15-minute increments. And you could sign up for one or as many of those throughout that 24 hours and, and pray. And so there would be times at church you'd have dozens of people praying, and then maybe in the middle of the night only two or three or four or so praying. Uh, and out of the, this is a church of thousands of people, and there might be a hundred or so people who signed up each time we had those 24-hour prayer vigils. But hundreds of people would put in prayer requests. Uh, I'm desperate for this. I, I, I'm in crisis mode. Please pray about this. Please pray about that, whatever it might be. Hundreds of people putting in requests. And over the course of time, I discovered that almost none of the people who were putting prayer requests in ever, ever once signed up for a 15-minute segment to pray. So they're desperate for themselves, but they're not desperate enough to pray or pray for someone else who is desperate. Uh, I, I, I said... Don't expect someone else to do the work for you. Uh, Don't expect someone else. Uh, Right now, uh, look at this point here. If your crisis doesn't motivate you to pray, you're in greater danger than you imagine. I don't know what crisis you might be facing, what difficulty. If you're not motivated to pray about it, then you're in greater danger than you can imagine. Warning number two, don't, uh, don't pray. I don't pray during times of crisis. Warning three, when I react rashly. I react rashly. You know, what makes you mad? I'll tell you what makes me mad. Here here are the top two things that get me. Here's my triggers right here. Incompetence and injustice. Somebody's incompetent drives me crazy. If there's injustice, whether it's uh, against a very vulnerable people or it's injustice against me, drives me crazy so that triggers me and what happens is i react rashly so sometimes i i uh, overreact sometimes i'm hasty and jump down somebody's throat uh when and i don't represent jesus well those are some triggers for me well jesus has just said my betrayer is here and uh verse 42 and judas shows up and and I, what i want you to see is that uh, although the, the betrayal and the arrest and the torture and the, and the execution w- was coming up it wasn't a surprise to jesus He's been talking about it all the way along. Why? Because the, 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 the death of the Son of God was planned before the foundation of the world. And Jesus obeyed his Father's will even to the point of death. But notice what it says, this next verse. As he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. So it's dark out. That they want to catch Jesus uh, outside the city in dark. Judas shows up. Uh, with a detachment of soldiers and a group of bouncers that had been hired by the religious officials. And so just imagine being one of the disciples. You're half awake, right? And you got this crowd coming with weapons and torches. And I think it would be pretty unsettling. And then there's this prearranged signal that they didn't want to get the wrong person there in the dark in the Olive Garden. So Judas says, I'll I'll kiss that one who's Jesus and you'll know that's him. And so Judas identifies Jesus. And then next verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. Now we know from another gospel that the the one who pulled out the sword and struck somebody in the ear was Peter. Uh... Obviously, Peter was better at fishing than swordplay, because the intent would have been to kill. Here the guy just needs plastic surgery, which Jesus immediately provides. Uh, Peter was often impetuous, he was often hasty, uh, but violence was not the answer. Aggression was not the answer. And, and Peter's rash reaction of anger was wrong, and his bravery didn't last. didn't last at all. Notice the next verse. And they all left him and fled. So the the disciples summon up the courage to run away. After everything they'd promised, every last one of them, they weren't chased. These these guards weren't after them, they were after Jesus. Uh, And they ran away even though they were not threatened. And then Mark includes this little, little scenario which is amazing. Notice this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth wrapped around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So the guy was wearing a sindone. The sindone is an outer garment. Uh, and, And in this case, it was made of expensive linen. But apparently, he was not wearing a chitone. The chitone was the undergarment. And he wasn't wearing it because when they grabbed him, he was able to rip out of their grasp and they tore the coat away and he streaked off into the darkness. Now Mark doesn't tell us this guy's name, this young man, uh, that I think is pretty gracious of him not to say his name because who wants to be mentioned in the Bible as not only running away but going commando at a very difficult point. Now, the point that is being made here is that Jesus was totally, absolutely forsaken. Everybody ran away. All of them said, "And hey, we're going to follow you to the end, even if it's death. Uh, we're, we're pledging to die for you. And all of them deserted. They reacted rashly with anger and fear. Now, how often I respond with righteous anger when I should be loving. How often I act with tolerance when I should actually be getting in someone's face. Um, So Jesus was led away by armed guards, and one disciple sneaks after him. Look at this. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So he's afraid, but at least he follows. And uh, Peter hangs out by the fire with the guards trying to be inconspicuous while Jesus' trial is going on on the inside. Now, the immediate problem in the trial of Jesus was a lack of evidence. Uh, no reliable witnesses testified against Jesus. Now, there were some false witnesses, but their testimony conflicted, and so it was thrown out. Uh, and in spite of the lies that were being tossed in Jesus' face, he did nothing to defend himself. Didn't even try. And so finally, in frustration, the high priest, who's questioning Jesus, asked him, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And that declaration ended the need for any evidence. The high priest yells this. Notice verse uh, 63. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now just in case you're not aware, there are scholars, there are preachers, pastors, teachers who say that Jesus never claimed to to be God. Which is ridiculous if you read the New Testament. Because he claimed to be God in a variety of ways a number of times. Uh, And in fact, people tried to kill him on multiple occasions during his ministry because of his blasphemy that he was claiming to be God. Uh, He said things like, he and the Father are one. That to see him was to see God the Father. And and Jesus' admission here was a death sentence. Uh, He was committing blasphemy, saying that he was the Holy One of God. And as a result, they condemned him to death. They spit on him. Then they cover his eyes and hit him and say, Who hit you? Prophesy. You're a prophet. Tell us who hit you just now. They mock him and beat him. And meanwhile, Peter's hanging out by the fire. And what happens next is a sign of trouble. Here's warning sign number four. It's when I fail the small tests. That's the warning sign, when I fail the small tests. Now, uh, thinking about this, I, I was remembering back, I think it was early high school, where I got fascinated with this idea of living in the wilderness on my own, all right? And I thought, I'd just like to go and like camp out and survive on my own for a couple of weeks. And so I said to my dad, you know, I'd like to do this. And he said, no. Uh, So I kept asking him, you know, just like I just want to go and survive, you know. I want to be, show what a a wild creature I'd, no, no, you're not doing that. So I kept after him long enough that finally said, okay, I'll let you go for two nights. Uh, Bob and Lily and Hal have a lot of property. I'm going to ask them. I'll take you. I'll drop you off. You can go camp for two nights, and then you've got to come back, and I'll pick you up. I thought, okay, great. So um, I pack up all my gear, my mountain tent. Um... I, I made some baking powder biscuits because, you know, they would keep for a while and I, and I made those. I had, I had a canteen of water. I didn't take matches. Those are for sissies. I didn't take a flashlight. I had a 22, because I was going to kill my food and eat it. So my dad drives up to the house property and lets me off and I go back out in the woods and I set up my mountain tent and, and uh, I try to make a fire and I didn't do very well and, uh, and I couldn't find any game to shoot. There was nothing to shoot. Um, so I'm hanging out and like, as it starts to get dark, I, you know, I ate the baking powder biscuits and they made me really thirsty and I drank the whole canteen of water. And so now I don't have any food, I don't have any water. So I retired for the night. And what I didn't realize is that I had set up that tent like on a racetrack for deer. I mean, every deer in the entire county ran past my tent, chased by wild animals of some sort. I stayed up all night fearful as the thundering hooves went by my tent. And so the next morning, as soon as the sun came up, I'm like, well, i got to pack up the tent and move somewhere else anyway, and so I packed up my stuff, and I was like, I'm really thirsty, I'm kind of hungry, I kind of smell bad, and I was like, i got another day of this. And, but eventually, somewhere around late morning, I just decided I was going to walk to Bob and Lillian's house, and I knocked on the door and I said, their dog bit me, can I have some water? And then I said, can I call my daddy? And so I didn't make one night. And you know what? I never asked my dad, can I go out in the wilderness for two weeks by myself? Because I failed the small test. And I knew. And everyone knew. Uh, You notice what happens here? Jesus stands up to the lies. He stands up to the beating and the mocking and the sentence of death. And Peter gets called out by a servant girl. Look what happens. This verse. One of the servant girls looked at him and said you also were with the Nazarene Jesus but he denied it saying I neither know nor understand what you mean so you got to appreciate that this is not a threatening figure it's not an armed guard it's a girl it's not an official it's a servant and Peter makes a total denial He uses two different words for knowledge. He's an oida, which is the word for theoretical knowledge, epistemia, which is the the word for practical knowledge. He says, I don't know this Jesus in theory or in practice. I have absolutely no idea who you're talking about. And this girl turns to other people and makes that same charge, and he denies it a second time, and then others begin to question him, certain that he's a Galilean. Uh, How do they know? His accent. Just the way I can tell somebody's from the Bronx or from Boston or from Chicago or Winnipeg or Fargo or Amarillo, every word Peter said convicted him that he was a Galilean. And so here's what he did in response. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So catch this. At that same moment Jesus is being denounced as a false prophet, his prophecy about Peter is coming true. It, and Peter curses and he swears to bolster his sincerity and to distance himself from this Jesus person. Here we have the leader of the apostles, the inner circle denies he even knows Jesus. He doesn't say, well, I agree with some of that, what that Jesus says, but not all of it. He doesn't say, Yeah, I hung out with him, but I'm not a fanatic about it. No, he said, I don't even know who you're talking about. And Peter's failure happened over a simple question from a servant girl. Uh, Notice this point it's in the small tests of everyday life that denial easily happens. That's where it happens, It, it comes in the conversation at the office or around the lunch table at school, or in your reaction to what somebody else did to you or said to you, and what you do when nobody is looking at you, when you want to fit in, when you decide to do something that's less than honest or ethical. Let me tell you, baptism is a test. And I would say in our country, it's kind of a small test. Because unlike some nations of this world, when you publicly declare to follow Jesus through baptism, then you're going to lose your family. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to die. And we make it about as comfortable as possible. We even moved inside because of the rain and a little cold. Surrounded by very supportive people. And so this is a small test in some respects. I'm so proud of these these adults who stepped forward and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. Uh, Even though though I've been at this, I've followed Jesus for a while, I want to publicly declare I'm so proud of these guys. What about you? What's keeping you if you say you're a follower of Jesus, what's keeping you from being obedient? Are you willing to, to, to why are you delaying? Because in a sense, this is a small test. And it's in the small test of everyday life where denial so easily happens. Now Steve Shogren and his wife moved into a new neighborhood and they quickly discovered that their two neighbors were not on good terms. And one neighbor was a very outspoken churchgoer. You love those people. And the other neighbor was not religious at all. And this unchurched, non-religious man told Steve that the two neighbors had had this very a long history of, of conflicts over minor issues. And the neighbor said, here's what took the cake. Uh, th- the other day we got a letter from his attorney threatening to sue us if we don't trim an orange tree that hangs over his property. He said, I just don't understand why he didn't come over and knock on my door and ask me to trim the tree before he sent a letter from his attorney. He said, you know, I was getting ready to trim that orange tree, but now there's no way I'm going to do anything until he forces me. I'm gladly going to go to court, he said, just so I can tell them that I'm being sued by a Christian over an orange tree. Steve's church-going neighbor might not know it, but he's denied Christ. He's denied Christ. It's in the little things, the stuff, the ordinary, every day where we too easily fail to follow Jesus. Now, now Peter's story is important for us on, on a couple of different levels. One is if he can fail, any of us can. Do, do you appreciate that? I and mean, here's the, the an apostle, the guy who was in the inner circle. This guy walked on water for a little bit. Uh, this guy saw the miracles of Jesus, and he failed. And he failed spectacularly. And if he can fail, I can fail. You can fail. Uh, The other thing it teaches us is if he can be forgiven, any of us can be forgiven. He was welcomed back. He was restored. After what he did, he denied he ever knew Jesus. And he was forgiven. Let me tell you, there's always a way back. Uh, Here's the point, that through Jesus, no failure is final. If you're in Christ, no failure is final. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. There's grace and mercy open to you and me, even after the most terrible failure. And some of you have guilt in your life. You have shame in your life because how have you blown it? You're well aware how you kept quiet when you should have said something or how you said something when you should have kept quiet. Have there been times you've denied Christ with your actions? Times you've reacted with anger or fear or embarrassment and failed to be the one you should be? God will gladly restore you. Just confess it to Him. Have you been overconfident, thinking you're beyond failure or temptation? Are are you facing crisis and not really praying through that crisis? Do you have a tendency to react with anger or fear? Have you handled the small tests that come about daily life? You know, right now there are Christians in other parts of the world faced with the threat of torture or death for following Jesus. Several years ago in Ethiopia, Some militants stopped a bus in a rural area, and there were 45 passengers on board. And they asked each passenger what their religious affiliation was, and nine of those passengers said that they were Christians. And so they were ordered to denounce their faith or be killed. Eight of those nine people denied Jesus. Eight of those nine people said, I'm denying my faith. But 34-year-old Estefano Sabate refused. And instead, while the other passengers were begging him to deny Christ, Abate calmly told the militants about Jesus. And they executed him on the spot, and they sent the bus on the way and left Abate's body as a warning to others. And I hear stories like that all the time, and I wonder, would I be that courageous? How would I respond in that situation? I'd like to think that I would be that courageous, but I don't know until that time comes. Here's what gives me hope. Look at 1 Peter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, God shows up in your moment of crisis. Whether it's an insult or something far worse, you can have a supernatural response by the power of God. He will give you what you need when you need it. That gives me courage. I don't know the depths of your denial today, I don't know how you failed. But I know that the Lamb of God is greater than all your sin. I know that His grace is enough. I know that the work of Jesus is so great, His sacrifice so powerful, His love so strong, His grace so amazing that everyone who believes has been made new. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sin, the mistakes, the disappointment is washed away. And so right now, I just invite you to close your eyes. And you can silently use these words to speak to God yourself. I'll pray them aloud, and you, in the quietness of your heart, can pray them too. Father, I admit my weakness. I confess there have been times I've deserted you. Thank you that my failure does not have to be final. Forgive me, Lord. May I trust you, your spirit of glory to rest on me in time of need. Make today a new start in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.